part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Father, we come and and we uh, proclaim our dependency upon you this morning, Father. And Father, I love those songs that we sing this morning, that worship of you, Father, because there's clarity in so many of those lyrics, Father. It is so easy for us to assemble this morning looking for blessing, looking for you just to unravel all the tangled webs of our lives this morning. And yet, Father, if you did all that, but we didn't have you, Father, we would be the most needy of people. And so, Father, would you help us get that perspective? Because, Father, our circumstances this morning dictate so often our emotions, our approach, even our worship this morning. Father, will you, will you change the way that we look at things so that we can see your glory, Father, that we can see all that you've done through Christ, so that we see that there's a sufficiency already there, Father, not something to be attained, but already attained through the finished work of Christ. Father, those circumstances, those tangled webs, they will still be there after this worship service. And Father, we we are not trying to find some kind of utopia away from the realities of this world. We just know that you are a real God and we have a real need. And what we need most of all is you, Father. And so will you just answer that prayer? Will you give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning the beauty of your word as we pray this humbly before you, Father? Amen. You may be seated this morning and get your Bibles out. And as we start this Christmas series, I want to ask you to do something. We we kind of touched on this last week, but I, I want you to physically do something for me uh, this morning. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter one in your Bibles. Get your Bible and open up Genesis chapter one, and, and just kind of grab that page. Okay, just grab that one page and just kind of hold it there. Uh, for most of you, it's probably going to be in your left hand there. Again, if you look over from Genesis 1, just maybe a page, maybe two pages in your Bible, you're going to find Genesis 3, okay? I want you to go there. This Bible is so complicated in many ways. It really is. I mean, can can you ever imagine trying to take all the wealth of this information and and storing that in your mind and your heart? It's overwhelming, and people get so overwhelmed by God's Word. But I want you to see this, and we talked about it a little bit last week. This is a story, folks with Christ being the central character, with you very much being included in that. And and on page one, what you have there in Genesis 1, it's creation. And in that, on that one page, it begins to tell us, maybe it's two pages in your Bible, depending on if you have large print. Uh, You know, it may be two or three pages, but it's one of those, and it tells us about how God created everything, everything perfect. And, And that starts the story of of mankind and how we come from the creative act of God. Well, then we don't get too far into that creative act of God. Just a page over by Genesis 3, we see that there's a rebellion. And we see that even though God has created mankind with perfection, put him in in the most beautiful place that you could ever imagine there in the Garden of Eden, on page 3, and you can grab that kind of with your fingers there, we have this thing called the fall. The theologians call it the fall. It's where we rebelled against God. Now I want you to go all the way, keeping that there and holding on to that, I want you to go all the way, if you can, kind of taking your Bible, go all the way to Revelation 21 and 22. It's going to be at the back of your Bible, depending on if you have a study Bible or not, it's going to be somewhere close to the back. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. 
This is where we find the, the story and, and probably the greatest description that we have of heaven about how there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and how God, everything that sin broke, Christ is going to restore for those who have put their faith and trust in him. It's what theologians call the restoration. So we have creation where God created everything. We have this rebellion of man that we call the fall. That's on the first couple pages. Then in the last couple pages, chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, we have this thing called restoration where everything that was broken by sin is now restored. Now, look what you have left in the middle. Pretty healthy chunk. Do you know what that whole healthy part of of the Bible is? 99.9% of it? It's the story of redemption. The Bible really is just those four things. Creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And on just a few pages we have creation. On just one, two pages, this fall and this rebellion. Only just a few pages, this heaven and the restoration. Everything else, everything else in the Bible is always directed to this redemptive work. Then you might say, well, Bobby, you know, I know that's the New Testament, but the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament is the redemptive work of Christ? Yes. So you can take that middle section and you can basically divide it into three different parts. You can take the part that looks forward to Christ and all the prophecies and the promises about a coming Savior. How there's going to be a rescuer for this rebellious people that we were. And then you're going to find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Christ and the actual accounts of his life. How he walked and talked, how he dealt with people, how he, you know, the sermons that he preached and the the lessons that he taught and the different things that he did according to that. And then you're going to find after the Gospels, you're going to see a little bit of history in Acts of the early church. And then you're going to find everything looking back to this redemptive work. Paul, Peter, John, they all start to write. And they all look back to the change that has been made now that Christ has come and followed out and followed through with everything that God had predicted. It's an overwhelming book. But just remember those four things. Creation, page one. The fall, probably about page three. Restoration at the very end, Revelation 21 and 22. And everything else centers on the work, the life of Jesus Christ. Now that's important for us to understand this morning because you know the central theme, it's not just that Christ is a, a, a character in this whole cast. He, he's the central character. He's the one that the whole Bible directs its attention to. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, famous Baptist preacher, uh, came in and there was a young student that was uh, kind of mentor, you know, being mentored by Spurgeon. And uh, he preached a sermon in his church and, and Charles Spurgeon himself came and, and listened to the sermon. And afterwards, the, the, the gentleman asked, okay, you know, was it okay? Was it good? And Spurgeon said, it was fair. Well, you can only imagine that guy felt about this big. He was crushed. Here's his hero, this preacher among all preachers. And, and he, he asked for a critique, but probably not really wanting to be critiqued, critiqued. He probably wanted to say, man, that was just a great sermon. I learned so much. Would have never preached such a great sermon. But that's not what he heard. What he heard was, well, it was fair. He said, well, you know, did I not, you know, exhaust the text? Did I not do this? And he began to go through all the different things. Did I not illustrate it well? Did I not do this? Did I not communicate well? Did I stumble over words? And Spurgeon said, no, all that was okay. He says, fair, because there was one thing that you missed. There was one thing that was greatly lacking from your sermon. And the young preacher said, what? He said, Christ. 
And, and that young preacher came back and he said, but, but in that passage, it was Old Testament, and, and it really didn't have a passage about Christ. It didn't speak about Christ. And Spurgeon says, every word speaks of Christ. And he said to that boy, you know, they're over there in London, England. He said, is there any place in England that you can't go that there's not a pathway to London? And that young preacher boy said, well, you know, I imagine no matter where you would go in England, there is a pathway to London. And he said, so it is with the Bible. Son, from now on, when you examine your text, make a beeline. This is the famous quote from uh, Spurgeon. He said, make a beeline to the cross. Old Testament, New Testament. This little book, this prophetic book, this historical book, make a beeline to the cross. Now, I say all that this morning because I want you to understand, to really properly understand the Gospels. I mean, here it is about the birth of Christ. And yet to really understand it, we have to to really get that mindset that everything is all about Christ. That he is the central character. That one of the fundamental understandings of the Bible that is always going to point back to this redemptive work. It's a love story that God has written for us. And it has the good, the bad, and the ugly. And yet in the midst of all of this, is this picture of Christ. It's kind of like the new Star Wars. I think we're 11 days, 13 hours, as of just a couple days ago, okay, uh, away from that, Lee, and I know you appreciate that. But, you know, you could go, <laughs> and Craig, you too, I realize you're waiting with bated breath there. But, you know, you could go see Star Wars 7, and you could get a good story. But would you not agree that for the most part, to really get the fullness of 7, that you have to kind of see the first six? You have to kind of understand the characters. You have to understand the story. You have to understand that, okay, there's more to this than just this generation, that there's a generation of stories that lead to this point of Star Wars 7. Well, the same way is true when we get to the Bible. We can't just isolate it. If we just looked at Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we would get a great story. But really to see the fullness of that story, you have to understand what has happened for generations. And where we find this story come in and especially Matthew, we see a story that is written for Jewish people who are waiting, and they have been waiting for centuries for a Messiah. They've been waiting forever, it seems to them. The promise has been there. They thought it was going to happen in their lifetime, just like a lot of the New Testament writers would write about Christ coming back in their lifetime, and they really kind of anticipated it was going to happen during their days, and yet here we are 2,000 years later, and Christ has not returned yet for that second coming. Well, they were thinking this Messiah. And don't think that they had not had a couple of false, false alarms. There, there were, I don't think we really understand that there were people going around saying that they were Messiahs all the time. There were people going out there claiming to be this chosen one of God, this sent one of God to come into this world. So it's not like there weren't people out there going, okay, I'm the Messiah. And yet they had not found the authentic one from God that had come. And so let's open to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And, and the, the frustrating thing for me as a pastor today is that the Christmas story in Matthew is really chapters 1 and 2, and there is no way that we can cover all of that unless you want to stay to about 3 o'clock. And, uh, you know, I, I realize that we could just spend the whole Christmas season just in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, but I'm going to try to summarize that and hit the high points, but really you know, get to the meat of that. Because there's going to be a lot of things that will evolve. Uh, Herod and how he sends out, you know, and, and uh, tries to come after Christ, 
And we're going to have to leave off a lot of different parts. But what we're going to hit is, is the, the real meat of it. And what we find in the meat of it is found really in verse 1. Matthew 1, 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I'm almost certain that Matthew did not know that he was going to be, that his book was going to be the first one in the New Testament. You know, we didn't really have what we call the canon of the Bible, the assembling of all these different books of the Bible until, you know, after Christ, hundreds of years as the early church began to develop and they developed the canon of the Bible. And it's what you see today, you know, that you can open up, go from Old Testament and you turn to the New Testament and the first book there, the Gospel of Matthew. I don't think that when Matthew is recording this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's going, you know, man, I've got to come out with a really good first verse. Because there's been 400 years of silence since the Old Testament. And, and, you know, they're waiting for something dramatic. And I better just really have a zinger there for this first verse. He, he doesn't have a clue. And yet God has a full clue as he inspires Matthew to do this. And, and so what do we see Matthew or the Holy Spirit leading Matthew to write and record? A three-part of this first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Don't overlook, overlook that, that little edition of Christ. Is this the genealogy of a man called Jesus? Yes. But Matthew adds something. He adds this term, Christ. Christ is the, the, the Gentile, if you want to say, the, the Greek version of, of the Hebrew word for Messiah. From the very beginning, Matthew, who is writing to a Jewish audience, we have four different Gospels. They're all written to different uh, groups of people. And Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's Jewish himself, and he's writing from a Jewish perspective. So the first thing that he does is he connects the old with the new. Again, think Star Wars. Think Star Wars 7, that there's a connection between you know, the people and the characters now to, to the first six of the episodes there. And the first thing that Matthew does is I want you to know that as I begin to write this about the genealogy of Jesus, that this is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. This is the one that you've been waiting centuries, hundreds of years for. This is the one. Then look what he does next. He says, okay, not only is this the Christ, but he said, this is the son of David. He begins to say, okay, not, not only is he just coming and this is the Messiah, but I want you to know that all those Old Testament prophecies, they've been fulfilled in this one. He talks about him being the, the son of Abraham there. He does a good direct connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Honestly, when you come to the Bible and it has what we call a, a genealogy, a lineage, the begats, what do you usually do? I think most people do uh, four letters, S-K-I-P, skip. And you, we kind of look down to where the begats stop. We just kind of peruse with our eyes. Okay, there's the final begat, and then we start reading again. And, and that's understandable. I mean, this morning, I don't know that anybody just wants, if I said, do I have a volunteer to stand up and read verses 1 through 17 of Matthew 1? I, I, or verses 1 through 16. I don't know that too many people would say, you know, I really get into that kind of stuff. I just want to read all those names. I really want to butcher those Old Testament names. I, you know, I, I, we skip it. But folks, I, I promise you, there is not an idle word in this word of God. Every word is there for purpose. 
And even though we have this tendency to look over that, in the very beginning, in verse 1, what we see Matthew doing is connecting the old with the new. And we begin to see that there's a purpose in that, that he very much has a purpose in this uh, of not skipping over. And that is that he wants us to see all these different things uh, uh, about Christ and our connection to him. But as much as it shows us about Christ, I promise you this morning, it's going to show you a lot about the heart of the Father. As much as we are to learn of Christ in this gospel, we're going to know about the Father who sent him. And by the end of this morning, what I would hope is that while we may not cover every historical event of Matthew, again, that would take hours and hours to go through that and and look at all the fine details there. I, I pray that you would understand three things about our Heavenly Father and the gift that he's given us through Christ and what he's accomplishing there. That's kind of the aim this morning. I'll just tell you right up front, our our aim this morning is not to be so historically uh, comprehensive that you go out here as walking encyclopedias and you can define and answer any question from the Gospel of uh, Matthew about the birth of Christ. What I pray will happen is that we go out here and we're just in awe and worship of God. And we say, God, you, you gave us this gift. So how do we do that? How do we begin to to take this apart? Well, first thing that we begin to see is that uh, there are four different gospel accounts, uh, or there are four different gospels, and there's three biblical accounts of, if you want to say, the birth of Christ or the coming of Christ. Mark doesn't do it. But even that begins to tell us that God is a God who's very personal. If you were to find out about me, and, and the only story that you had is you asked clearly, you would get a perspective. If you go to ask my daughters, you're going to get a different perspective. If you ask my mom and my dad, you're going to get a different perspective. If you ask a close friend, you're going to get another perspective. Those four perspectives are going to give you a fullness of, well, this is who the man is of Bobby Lankus. You just ask my wife, that would be hopefully a correct perspective and, and hopefully somewhat of a good perspective. But it would only have that, that one avenue. It would only really have that one relationship. And you're going to find out so much more when you ask, uh, you know, my two daughters. They're going to go, yeah, let me tell you about my dad. Or if you ask my mom and my dad, say, let me tell you about my son. We saw him, you know, from birth up. And so you're going to get these different perspectives. Well, that's what God does in the Gospels. And, and for us to understand that that's why we have four Gospels and not one Gospel. Because they don't compete with one another. They complete this picture that we get of Christ. Some written to a Jewish audience. Some written to a Gentile audience. Mark writes to a Roman audience. And they come from different perspectives. Matthew's main point, I want you to see Christ coming as a king. Messiah king. Well, that's not Mark's point. Mark, when he's writing the gospel, he says, I want you to see a suffering servant. As he writes to those Romans, he said, I want you to see somebody who actually came to serve. That doesn't mean that Matthew doesn't have some service things in there. But have you ever noticed that Matthew doesn't tell us about a, a lowly baby in a manger and it doesn't have shepherds out in the fields? Who tells us about that? Luke. That's Luke's story. And, and we'll see that in, in the coming weeks because it's a different perspective. Who does Matthew include? Magi. Special people, important people. Some would even say kings coming from another land. We don't know that they were kings, but we've made up a song about we three kings, and we don't even know that there was three, but we've made up a song. And why is Matthew in chapter 2, why does he cover that when Luke doesn't cover it at all? 
Because there's one thing. He says, as I write to these Jewish people, I want to make this connection between the old and the new. I want to make sure that they understand that this is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And I want them to know that this is not just another person. This is the Messiah King. So he begins to do that. We begin to see these, these four different Gospels. And again, they don't compete against each other. Uh, I've heard some theological discussion about, you know, that you can't trust the Bible because this one says this about the birth of Christ, but this one doesn't say. My daughters will tell you something different than my wife will. And my dad and mom will tell you something different than my daughters would. Different perspectives. Not to confuse us, but so that we can get the full picture of this gift of Christ. So let's start in the, the account of Matthew. Again, he's writing to what kind of audience? Who's his audience? Jewish people. And they were awaiting a Messiah king. They are urgently waiting for a Messiah king. And that's really the kind of the key that unlocks the whole gospel of Matthew. And we see this evidence of the Messiah king in the very first verse. Again, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew identifies Jesus in a threefold description. He says, number one, this is the Christ. Again, this is the, the Greek translation of uh, the word for Messiah. We see this 533 times in the New Testament. Now, I don't tell you that so that you have a trivia fact. I tell you that because this is the predominant title that we see. In the Old Testament, we see this foretelling that it's going to come, that he's going to come. But now he begins to, to tell us this is the king, this is the Messiah. But then look what he does. He says, okay, the son of David. He connects the coming king with what? A past king. Not only because it was prophesied, not just because if you, you could go back to Second Samuel chapter 7 and see that there was a prophecy. He says, I want you to know that, you know, that usually kings come from a, a line of kings, royalty. He said, I want you to know that it wasn't just a prediction back there in Samuel. I want you to know that this is really, he is the son of David. But he's also the son of Abraham. Why was that important? Well, that's when God made the covenant with the Jewish people. Remember, Abraham? If you just have faith, if you, if you leave everything that's familiar, if you go to the totally unfamiliar, if you go out there and just trust me, I have a call upon your life. And that call upon your life, as he began to strive in Genesis chapter 12 and verses uh, 1 and 2, it, it begins to tell us there that, okay, I will bless you and I will make of you a great nation and you will have so many descendants. But he also said one of the things, your descendants will be a blessing to all nations. All the way back in Genesis 12, we see that Christ is predicted and that he's not just going to come for the Jewish people, but he's going to come to be a blessing to all people, Jews and Gentiles. Those who are part of the people of God in the Old Testament identified that way, and those who are not. Unless you're Jewish here this morning, that's good news for us. That, that we see in the Old Testament as God even establishes the Israelites that he has this plan for a Messiah to come. So he says, okay, he's the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the son of the covenant. In one verse, Matthew tells all of his readers that this is who Christ is. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. 
And we could read on to verse 3 and 4, and then we could start to get this lineage. And, and Matthew doesn't do this to bore us. He doesn't do it and say, okay, they're probably going to skip this part and get down to the next part. He does it very specifically. He wants us to know about the nature and the purposes of God. He's telling us about God as he describes the coming of Christ. Now, what is it that we can know about God the Father as he sends Christ the Son? Three things this morning. Number one, that he is a promise-keeping God. First thing that we see is that over thousands of years, you know, hundreds of years, centuries there, that he's a promise-keeping God. That's why he puts in there about David. He, he said that there was a prophecy, Second Samuel. Hey, this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Hey, Abraham, there was a uh, prophecy back in, in, in Genesis 12. Here's a fulfillment. He's a promise-keeping God. Here, here's what it said in Genesis 12:2. This is the covenant that God made with Abraham all the way back in the Old Testament. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And when you agree that Abraham showed faith, was Abraham perfect? Did Abraham keep all the promises he made to God? See, what we see here is that even in the lack of our faithfulness, I mean, God remains faithful. But what he's really telling us here as he begins this long list of all these names that we can't even pronounce, and again, I am more than glad if somebody wants to stand up, first, if you, if you want to stand up and say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle 3 through 16 or Ricky or, or somebody wants to, you know, go for it, uh, this is where you get readers in the church, you know, as a pastor. Because, I mean, those names, I just don't know those names. And we, we mess them up. Uh, one of my pastors of old told me this. He said, Bobby, here's the secret. Because I asked him, I said, you know, when you get these really tough names, how do you do it, Brother Ken? And Brother Ken told me this. He said, the main thing is that you say it the same way each time. You went to school, they're going to think that you're right and they've been wrong all these years. And so I followed that advice all these years. <laughs> well, why does he do this? Why does he show us all this? Because as we begin to look down that lineage, folks, we see a lot of promise breakers. And if the list continued to the genealogy of you and I today, would he find promise breakers in our lives? Yeah. Have you ever made a promise to God and, and broken that promise? I mean, maybe sometimes not willfully, sometimes just out of cowardice, sometimes out of lack of faith, lack of, uh, of just uh, sometimes maybe lack of love. But then there's been other times, have you willfully broken a promise that you made to God? I mean, you kind of knew the promise. It was there in your mind. And yet it was like, I just don't feel like it. And there was even a willfulness in that brokenness of, of that promise. See, one thing that we find by this coming Messiah is that God is keeping his promises even when we are not keeping our promises. Folks, that is not a call to laziness in our Christian life. It's a call to worship and to faithfulness. God, thank you that you're faithful when I'm not. In fact, you know that's what the Bible says time and time again, that, that he is faithful even when we're not faithful. I mean, even look down at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
Okay, he's going through this lineage, and he gets to King David. And he says, okay, if we're going to trace Jesus all the way back, we're going to go through, and we see that, that David, he is a descendant of David. But then he does something interesting. He says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who, who is that? Anybody know? Bathsheba. Now, why wouldn't he just say Bathsheba out loud? Yeah, he was the wife of, she was the wife of Uriah, but, but why not just call it like it is and just say Bathsheba and say the father of Solomon by, by Bathsheba? Because it's not, as we're going to see in this text, it's not that God is not trying to sweep dirty laundry under the, the, the carpet there. We're going to see in just a second that he mentions four women, three others, and Bathsheba, and he just calls them by name. But why does he say the wife of Uriah? Well, we can speculate. We don't know. But here's what most scholars and theologians think. David and Uriah were good friends. Maybe not as close as David and Jonathan, but they were good friends. Remember when David had to hide for his life? He had his mighty men. Guess who was one of those mighty men that put their life on the line when it came to stick with David, even when Saul was coming against him? Uriah. So you've got this guy who's a good friend, a trusted friend. And yet what happened? Do you remember the story? David becomes king. He's out there on his porch one night. He sees a beautiful woman, Bathsheba. She's bathing there on the rooftop, and he desires her. He lusts after her. He sends for her. They end up in an adulterous relationship. Now why does God say the wife of Uriah instead of just Bathsheba? the, The purpose, I would believe, He's saying, look, David, this wasn't just a little error. This wasn't just, you know, uh, another woman. This was a defiance of everything. I want you to know that you betrayed your friend. This wasn't just an affair. This wasn't just, you know, a one-night stand. This is something, there was an act of disobedience that was willful here. But even in your willful disobedience, I remain faithful and I'm a promise keeper. Does that help you this morning? Folks, that's not a call to laziness. That's, hey man, I got, I'm so glad God's got everything covered. I can just go out and do whatever I want. No, Paul handled that over and over again. Every time that came up in the New Testament church, he would fight that down and said, no, you got it all wrong. But for those, and I would pray that this would be you, and I would pray that this would be my heart, that we want to live for God, And we would even sometimes promise with God. We would even covenant with God. And yet sometimes we're not faithful to follow through with those promises. Aren't you glad that there's a promise keeper in the midst of us breaking promises? That's what Matthew's trying to show us here. I I love Tim Keller. He's one of my favorite writers. I don't know if you've ever read a lot that he writes. And a great theologian and pastor. and, And he said... That's why the Bible is the good news and not just good advice. I hear a lot of sermons and people are giving good advice. No, this is the good news. And what is that good news? That in the midst of our unfaithfulness, he remains faithful. That was a constant thing upon Paul's uh, mindset as he looked back on on his life. And he looked back. uh, Look what he proclaimed to to Timothy, his understudy. 2 Timothy 2.13. He said, If we are faithless, he that is God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He said, this is not on your ability to hold on to God and to hold on for all your might. He said, this is God's ability to hold on to you. Amen? 
And that sure does encourage me. It doesn't call me to laziness. It calls me to, to worship. It calls me to say, God, thank you. That when I had that weak moment, when I had that disobedient spirit, when I had that willful defiance against you, because I would just didn't want to feel so holy that day, that you did not turn and leave me. But in my unfaithfulness, you remained faithful. Paul told it like this to the Romans. Romans 3, 3, he says, what if some, and it's kind of a different setting. I don't want to take it completely out of context. But he says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Aren't you glad that verse is in the Bible? Because <laughs> that's where we live sometimes, guys. Whether it's willful disobedience, willful kind of you know, wanting to do your own thing, or just because that particular day your faith quotient was about negative zero or negative 10, or negative 20. So the first thing that we begin to see there that Matthew has is that this is a promise-keeping God, but we also see a second thing as we go down this lineage, that he is a pursuing God. Look again uh, in Matthew 1. Look at verse 21. And in verse 21, we see kind of the overall purpose of Christ's coming. Matthew 1, 21. She that is married will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hey, who's this Jesus all about? Matthew kind of sums it up right there. He says, you just want to know the purpose, the call of Jesus, that the reason for his life? You find it right there in verse 21. He has come, and he's, his purpose is to save the people from their sins. He wraps it all up right there. Remember when we did that thing with the Bible? Page 1, creation. Page 3, the fall. Page 867 or whatever it is in your Bible, chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, restoration. But all the rest of the Bible, 99.9% of the Bible is this whole story of redemption. And Matthew sums that up in this verse. He says, you want to know what really the whole purpose of Christ is? He said for this, he's come to save the people from their sin. He centers on that one thought. He is a pursuing God. Now, why did we need a pursuing God? Because there's going to be days, guys, that you pursue God, and there's going to be days that you don't. There's going to be days that your heart and your mind and, and your life cries out, and you say, God, I need you. And just like we prayed before, God, I need you. Every hour I need you. And then there's going to be other day, honestly, that God is going to be an afterthought. Would you agree with that summation of our lives? That there's days that we pursue God earnestly, but then there's other days that we even have a little bit of a Jonah in us and we actually rebel against the call of God in our lives. Remember Jonah? He said, I want you to go to this place and I want you to tell these people, and I, I realize they're evil people, but you tell them about my redemptive work and that they can come to me. If they repent of their ways, I will spare them. And Jonah, out of cowardice, out of self-will out of so many different reasons that was in his heart. He said, that's not a job I want. So instead of heading this way, which was kind of one end of the known world at that time, he actually goes to a place that is about as far away in the known world of that day that he could go. And folks, there's some days in our lives that we cry out to God and we say, God, I just need you today. But there are days that we have Jonah days in our lives. And whether it's something just didn't go right or we disagree with how God is working in our lives, that we rebel against them. I mean, that was Jonah's problem. He said, 
God, I love you, but I don't see why you love these Ninevites. I don't agree with your will. And, and maybe you know a lot more than I do, but I, there's been times, I mean, I, I love God. But there's been times I've disagreed with God's will. I mean, things just happen that I said, God, I don't understand it. I disagree with that. Maybe I didn't use those words, but there was a disagreement in my heart. And that's why we need a pursuing God. Because not that we don't pursue God sometimes. I realize there are times, folks, that we just, you know, whether it's that song on the radio or, or that early morning devotion or that prayer that we cry out from our bed and with tears on the pillow and we say, God, I need you. I realize we do that. But there are those days that we are Jonah. And we know very clear what God has called us to. And we refuse to go. Why? Because we disagree with God. I mean, in a way, isn't that so pompous? I mean, can you imagine that we would be, that we, the created ones, would be so pompous toward the creator? That's why we need a pursuing God. And so when we begin to read through all these names and we begin to see all these people, and in essence, we get kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly. But that's the important part. It's not just the good. When you go down this list of kings, there are some really righteous kings, but there are some really unrighteous kings. See, that's not normal. Most of the time when we tell people about our background, we include all the, the highlights, the favorable ones. Uh, let me tell you about my Uncle Joe. Man, he is a mess. And we don't include Uncle Joe. In fact, we, try to, we don't even send a family invitation to Uncle Joe for the Christmas dinner, just hoping he doesn't get word and he doesn't show up. We love to name drop if it's an important name. For this whole last week, I've been going around saying, yeah, Kirby Smart, you know Kirby Smart? He's going to be the new coach, I think, at UGA. He was in my youth group. He really was. And back in Bainbridge, when I was a student minister, he was in my youth group. I know the family well. Sharon and Sunny, wonderful, wonderful folks. Well, I've been telling everybody this week, oh, yeah, Kirby, yeah, I saw him grow up. The man he is today is much because of, you know, what I taught him in seventh and eighth grade. That's our nature. We want to be aligned with the winners. We want to be aligned with people that they would go, oh, you know him? Well, what about season tickets? That's when Kirby doesn't know me. You know, you find out, yeah, I know him, but does he really remember me? See, that would be our nature. That is human nature, is that we pursue those of fame and fortune and those of importance. And what does this show us about God? That he names the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that he's a pursuing God. And he said in part of that pursuit, man, there were some times that you were evil, you were rebellious, and I still kept on pursuing you. And I made sure that I kept my promises. I mean, just look at the four women that he put there. Number one, in most of the genealogies, they would have not listed women. It was not unheard of, but it was uncommon. Especially these four women. We see Tamar. She was involved in an incestuous uh, relationship with her father-in-law. Not really something that you want in the family tree. And yet she's included right there. We have Rahab. Remember her? She's the spy. Uh, I mean, she's the, the prostitute that helped the spies back in Joshua. Again, she's a woman of the night. She's a one of question, very questionable character. Not just questionable, it's known. We have Ruth. What's so wrong about Ruth? We got a whole book of it. She was a Moabite. And there's a time when the Moabites, because they didn't help the people of Israel, 
when the Israel came in, and it, there was a curse, kind of, if you want to say, you know, uh, God had said, the people that bless you, I will bless you. The people that curse you, I will curse them. And the Moabites didn't help. And so there, there's this curse that kind of goes out on the Moabites. And so for a Moabite to be included in this lineage, this genealogy, that's an outsider. And then Bathsheba, one involved with adultery. To go with Abraham, who lied on several different occasions. Uh, David, who, who uh, also an adultery and a murderer. What does this show us about God? One word, one word, grace. Let's turn it into two words, amazing grace. Because here's the bottom line, guys. There's going to be days that you pursue God, and there's going to be days you run away from God. And what this tells us, what Matthew is revealing to us today, is that we have a pursuing God, and that we can run, but as the old saying says, you cannot hide. It doesn't mean that he forces obedience into your life, but I can promise you this. He, he, you can't hide from God. Jonah tried. He desperately tried, and, and he could not do it. But there's one last thing. He is a promise-keeping God. He's a pursuing God, but he's a purposeful God. You may be in a stage of your life right now. You may be in a season of your life. You're going, what's up with this? There's a word that we use in our family, and I had to make sure that I kind of had it uh, spelled the, the right way this morning. Kajankity. Anybody ever use that in your family? It's kind of a joke in our family. Kajankity is kind of a, a very loose term for things are really messed up. Things are jacked up. Things are not as they should be. If you went out to your car and it is falling apart and you've got a hubcap stapled on with, or, or uh, you know, glued on and you've got the, the steering wheel on with duct tape, that's kajankity, okay? And so in our family, it's just kind of a, a, a little, you know, when we come across something that's just really way off center and not right, we just, man, that's kajankity. Well, folks, you may be going through a part of your life right now. You go, man, my life is kajankity, buddy. I don't even know what it means. But it, if that's what it means, yeah, I, I've got stuff stuck on with, with you know, tape, and I've got things glued on, and I'm holding on to this. I've got one of those little ties, and I've got that tied on. That's how my life feels right now. Understand this about the God that, that we can serve this day. He's a purposeful God. But look what he says in verse 21 again. We see that overall purpose. That overall purpose, it says that she will bear a son, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But now go back to verse 17. And it's one of those that is be easy to skip this over because you're thinking, okay, that's just history. But, but look what it says in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, that is the Babylonian exile. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Not everybody, on the, not everybody in the lineage of Christ is listed here. What God has done is kind of summarize. He's included a lot, but he's gone 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Well, what is he trying to, to show us there? That there is some kind of order. I mean, scholars have speculated forever what these 14, 14, 14 means. I have my suspicions. I could tell you about numerology later on, but uh, the bottom line is God is a God of order. And what seems to be disorder in our life, oftentimes is, is God just working. Sometimes it is caused by our rebellion, our lack of faith, our lack of uh, following the call, but other times it is God just working in our lives for his purposes. 
He's divided these, uh, you know, the, the whole history of Christ into these three things. And, and basically, whether it's through rebellion, through disobedience, through chaos, he says, I, I can bring order into that. That's what God does. You like all the old-timey um, Christmas cartoons? I mean, the old, the good ones. Remember Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? This is going to be so theological. So, so you, you, you do want to make sure that you get your note for this one. But remember the Island of Misfit Toys? And as a kid, you're going, man, the one place I don't want to be is on the Island of Misfit Toys. You, you know, your heart, you know, it brought drama to the situation because these poor toys that were broken and bruised and no kid wanted, they were stuck on this island. Folks, that's all of humanity if we understand the Bible. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're talking about the misfit island. This is the misfit island. And guess what? You are a head misfit on this island. And I am and you are. But because we have a promise-keeping God, because we have a pursuing God, because we have a God who can work his purposes, he said, at the right time, I will give you my son. And he sends his son. He brings... Uh, order out of all this chaos. And it all sums up this. I'll sum it up this way. Look at verse 22 and 23 and we'll close. All this took place. Here's, here's the purpose. It's almost like a funnel. And you're getting down and he says, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to send a savior and yet you live on, on this island of misfits because you are the biggest myth, misfit out there. He says, but look what he summarizes in verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He said, in all your chaos, in all your rebellion, and all these things that you did left and right that brought disorder, he said, I, I want you to know I was working my purpose. That's why the New Testament tells us at the perfect time, God brought his son into this world. Not a second too early, not a second too late. That's what we learn from this Christmas story. You're not going to find a manger in Matthew because he's talking about a king. You're not going to find some of the shepherds. You're going to see magi. But when we get to other stories, you're going to see a, a different version of that. It's not that these conflict. that They complete the story of all these purposes that God has done. And this is the major purpose, that God was with us. He loved you and I so much. He said, okay, you can't come to me because you don't even pursue me when you want to. But, but you don't pursue me, so I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to come and live just like you. I'm going to be like you in every way, yet sinless that I can die a a death that you deserved, but that I will die for you. That's the gift. That's the Christmas story. And that's Matthew's perspective this morning, that a king has come with great purpose, and this king today can reside in your heart. So let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, I thank you this morning that uh, you have brought the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And Father, I thank you for Matthew's perspective. Father, there are so many things we left in this passage. And yet, Father, I pray that we would really take these things home this day, that we would be able to feed upon this week, not what it says about all the historical facts, but, Father, what it says about you, that you are a promise-keeping God. 
when we are a bunch of promise breakers, that you are pursuing God, when sometimes we are just rebellious people and we're running in the opposite direction. And you're a purposeful God. And Father, I just believe that there are some that this morning, they need to hear that, that you do have purpose, even in some of the kajankity things that are happening in their lives this morning, Father. And they think it's just kind of all duct taped together. Father, will you show them that even through that, that you can work good for your glory and for our good. So, Father, we have this time of reflection. We have this time when we just say we need you. And, Father, we praise you because you're a God who's a promise keeper. We just praise you for that. We promise you that even, Father, we thank you that even this day you've pursued us to give us your word. And we just ask now, Father, to give us broken, humble hearts to see you as you are, to worship you, to stand in awe of this gift of Christ the child, that you would come and dwell with us, among us, live with us, so that we can one day live with you. Father, thank you for this redemptive work and, and word from your word as we pray all this in Christ's name. Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast.